Well, good morning, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas Eve once again. Uh, grab your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at two passages this morning, as you can see behind me on the screen. We're going to begin in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, beginning in verses 18 and running through verse 25. And then we're going to shift back into the Old Testament, into the book of Isaiah in chapter 7. And then before we wrap up, we'll return back to Matthew to end our time in God's Word this morning. And as you can see behind me, our focus is a Christmas-themed focus, as it is the seven promises of Emmanuel, the name we have just sung, the name that we have just lifted up. It's interesting when you look into the four Gospels, we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is only within Matthew and Luke to which we find what we would title or deem as the Christmas story. If you look into the Gospel of Mark, he really just kind of jumps right into the ministry of Jesus, jumps right into the action, which makes sense because Mark was dictated by Peter, and if you're familiar with Peter, he was a man of action. He didn't just want to sit around and do nothing. You go into the Gospel of John, and John doesn't even deal with the Christmas story. He goes back to the eternal nature of Jesus and the equality that he had with God. But our passage this morning is probably one that's familiar to many of us as it's a passage that is preached on and taught on and uh, read during this Christmas season. It deals with the time when the angel visited Joseph, who would be Jesus' earthly father. And he came to reassure him of Mary's pregnancy and that Joseph had to have the need and the desire to be the father figure to the Son of God. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Matthew's account, and then we're going to focus on the prophecy to which Matthew brings out within this account, which comes from the book of Isaiah in chapter 7. And we're going to take time to understand when the prophecy was given, the context of that prophecy, and then the relevance that it is going to have for us today and for our lives. And we're going to see that the original prophecy in Isaiah wasn't necessarily speaking of Jesus at that time, but why Matthew was led by the Holy Spirit to use that particular prophecy and apply it to the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's begin in Matthew, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and the word of the Lord says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother married, had been betrothed, and that means had been engaged to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, just a side note, in the Jewish culture, if you were engaged, you were already considered husband and wife. That's why he's given that particular title here in Matthew. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, which means a righteous man, which means he was a man that sought to live his life according to the word of God and the law of God. He did his very best to live up to what God told him to do. But being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, a little context with that, the meaning putting her to shame was to bring her into public disgrace. Because Mary was found to be pregnant, and Joseph obviously knew he wasn't the father, his options, according to the law of God, was to bring her into the the court of the town where everyone gathered, and they would shame her and eventually stone her to death. But Joseph, being a righteous man or a just man, he was unwilling to go through that sort of ordeal. So what he did is he resolved to divorce her quietly, meaning he, he was going to end the engagement, 
He wasn't going to marry her officially. Verse 20, but as he had considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, which really means ancestor of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So our main focus this morning from the Gospel of Matthew is going to be from verse 23. That is where we were given this name, Emmanuel, which Matthew was led to inform his original audience, his original readers, which would have been what we would know as Judeo-Christians or Jewish who accepted Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. He gives the information to them and to us that Emmanuel means God with us. What Matthew, again, is being led by the Holy Spirit to do in verse 23 is to draw a line to the prophecy which comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which we'll look at here in a moment. And Matthew, throughout his gospel, does this a lot, where he'll pull prophecies from the Old Testament in order to give meaning and significance to Jesus and his ministry, his life, and the purpose of it, and also to show how Jesus Christ wasn't just a man, but he in fact fulfilled prophecies 300 to thousands of years before he was even born and before he even began his own ministry. And to understand this name in the prophecy, Emmanuel, this is why we're going to turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles or your tablets or your phones, whatever you're reading the Word of God with, I encourage you to begin making your way to the Old Testament book of Isaiah in chapter 7. Now we're not going to read the entire chapter because just for the sake of time, but I'm going to give us a little bit of a summary to understand what is taking place so we can understand the context to which the prophet Isaiah delivers this prophecy that Matthew uses concerning Jesus. The events of Isaiah chapter 7 take place roughly around 730 B.C., so about 700 years before Jesus Christ even would be born. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 7 that it is in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. And so this takes place during the reign of King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah. Again, we have to do a little history At this point in time in history, the nation of Israel has been divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms. The king of Judah, or Judah, was in the southern territory of the southern kingdom. And events spoken within Isaiah chapter 7 can also be read of in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And the events are depicted of a Syro-Ephraimite war in which the king of Syria and the king of Ephraim, which is also noted as Israel, which would be the northern kingdom, have made an alliance, and they are planning to invade Judah, the southern kingdom. So Syrians in the northern kingdom are planning to invade, and their goal is this, 
They want to replace King Ahaz, and they want to put their own puppet king in their place so they can ultimately rule all of the territory. Now, we have to gain a little background on King Ahaz, which will help us understand who he is. And this comes from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. In both books, King Ahaz, we're told, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. See, King Ahaz had took it upon himself that he was going to desecrate the temple, and all throughout the land of Judah, he was going to set up altars to these false gods. And so he would go and he would make offerings to these false gods, to which we are told they were the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That particular comment, which comes from 2 Chronicles, places that statement back into Joshua. If we remember the book of Joshua, Joshua was commissioned by God to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, which they would drive or destroy the people that lived there because of all the idolatry that was happening. And so it might not seem a big, like a big idea for us today that, okay, King Ahaz was practicing idolatry. His actions may not seem that big. But here's the thing. God set up the kingship and that the king would lead the people. So when we read that a king is not seeking after the Lord and he's worshiping false God, what it implies when you read through Scripture is that he is leading the people of God to do the exact same thing. And so this is the main reason that Syria and Ephraim or Israel, the northern kingdom, were becoming a threat because within the Old Testament, the way God would bring judgment upon his people is he would bring nations to attack them when they practiced idolatry. So upon hearing the threat, coming back here to Isaiah 7, King Ahaz decides the best course of action for him to do is to make an alliance with the king of Assyria. And this would be an attempt or an alliance would ultimately be the downfall of the southern kingdom, but it would not happen during Ahaz's reign. And so back in chapter 7, the opening of the chapter lets us know that King Ahaz is out about the city of Jerusalem. What he's doing is he's checking the water supply in preparations for the invasion. And that's when God sends the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah's son to deliver a message, which we can read in verses 7 through 9 of this chapter. The bulk of the message, just to summarize it, is that the invasion will not stand. And eventually, Syria and Ephraim will fall, which is going to happen, ironically, at the hands of the Assyrians. And so the call and the charge to King Ahaz comes at the very end of verse 9. The prophet says to him, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. And what we see throughout history and through the scriptures that King Ahaz does not take this call, and he does not take this charge seriously. And this is where we pick up in verse 10 of Isaiah, because there's more message delivered. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, this is Isaiah, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's our prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. 
For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Going back to verse 10, when it says, again, the Lord said, the implication here is that the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz. The Lord used the prophets in the Old Testament basically as his microphone to speak to the kings and to the people. And so here we see that Ahaz, in verse 10, is given this incredible opportunity to ask the Lord for a sign. Again, the context, Frame and Syria are preparing to invade. And that word sign there means proof. Ask the Lord for proof. I like how one commentator translates. He says, ask Yahweh to prove that he will keep his promise. Ask for any kind of proof, anything from far under the earth to far above it. The call is for Ahaz to ask God for anything to prove his faithfulness. And what is this is pointing back to is the covenant that God has made with King David. God told King David through the prophet Nathan that there would not be a man through his family line that would not be on the throne in Judah and in Jerusalem. It was the Davidic covenant. But Ahaz has this fear. He has this fear and he has forgotten this covenant, this promise that God has given his family. And his fear is that he is going to be supplanted by this threat that is coming from the north. But God comes to him through the prophet Isaiah and he's saying, look, Ahaz, ask me for any proof of my faithfulness to my promises. Anything. Well, verse 12, Ahaz refuses. And his response in verse 12 makes him seem like a very noble individual, but we already know from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles he was not. But he responds that he is not going to put the Lord to the test. And we would hear that and we would say, wow, that is a very biblical response. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, it explicitly says, you shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. The problem is, the Lord specifically told King Ahaz, through the prophet Isaiah, to do it. Ahaz, let me prove myself to you. Let me prove my faithfulness to you. Let me prove I am true to my promises to you and your family. And we can know that King Ahaz's response in verse 12 wasn't noble because in verse 13, he receives a rebuke. The wording means that Ahaz, in verse 13, has troubled God and God's people, and, and both God and the people of God have grown tired and impatient with King Ahaz's actions and his reputation. And so the underlining issue is Ahaz's refusal is this. He has already made up in his mind that he is going to align himself with the king of Assyria rather than the eternal king of God. He's already gotten to that place. And so anything the prophet Isaiah can say to him isn't going to change that. And so despite Ahaz's refusal, you have to love the Lord's comedy here. Verse 14, Ahaz has refused for proof. Verse 14, the Lord himself 
we'll give you a sign. Basically, if you're not going to ask for it, God's going to give it to you anyway. Because you definitely need it. Because you're leading the people astray. And again, the, the meaning of test or, or, or sign means proof. And this is where the prophecy in Matthew uses the prophecy from Isaiah in verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the wording in Isaiah says virgin in most versions, which Matthew obviously is led by the Spirit to point to the Virgin Mary. But here in Isaiah, that word virgin is to speak of a girl or even a woman who has reached the age in which they are able to bear children. And so this would be pointing in the context of Isaiah to one of Ahaz's wives. Now the name Emmanuel, as Matthew points out, means God with us. And so the prophecy continues in Isaiah to speak how this child is going to live in a time of of abundance. And before he comes to age of being able to discern good from evil, the threat Ahaz is so scared of in this very moment is going to be wiped out. It is going to disappear. It is going to be gone. Because what's going to happen is that the Assyrians, who Ahaz is contemplating and thinking about making this alliance with, the Assyrians are eventually going to march in to where Syria and Ephraim are, or Israel, and they're going to wipe them out without the alliance even being met. And so this is the prophecy that Isaiah is pointing to in verse 16. The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That's pointing to that very thing. And so in verse 17, it speaks of the time when the nation of Israel was split in two. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed Judah. And that happened after the death of King Solomon. The nation of Israel was split in two. And then it says there will be a threat, and that is the king of Assyria. The very individual that King Ahaz was looking to as his friend and partner. Now, in this particular context, the prophecy is originally pointing to and speaking of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah would be the son of King Ahaz, and he would reign as king after King Ahaz's death. Now, we read of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. There we're told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. That means King Hezekiah destroyed every altar to every false god that his father had built. It goes on to say about King Hezekiah that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So bringing this back into the context of chapter 7 in Isaiah, King Hezekiah would have to deal with his father, King Ahaz's trust in the Assyrians over God. In Hezekiah's day, once the Assyrians heard of Ahaz's death, this is what they did. They marched into the north, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 in verse 16. This, when this happened, like his father before him, King Hezekiah, went into this state of fear. 
And this is what he decided maybe he should do. Since the Assyrians are marching in, and there's this massive, powerful empire at this time, King Hezekiah thought, okay, the best thing I can do now is to make an alliance with Egypt. And this is when the prophet Isaiah is sent by God to speak to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah heard the word from the Lord, from the prophet, but unlike his father, King Hezekiah believed the word, and he trusted in the word. And the Bible tells us that when King Hezekiah fell down before the Lord in prayer, the Lord sent an angel that evening and wiped out 185,000 troops within the Assyrian army. It was from that event in King Hezekiah's life to which Psalm 46 was written, which is, says twice that the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And the Lord of hosts is with us is a play on the name Emmanuel. And what it does, it is calling God's people back to remember the faithfulness of God to his people. So let's tie this back to Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew 1. Some of you are probably wondering, okay, what does this have to do with Christmas? Matthew, let's keep in mind, all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is written by men, but is directed by the Holy Spirit. So Matthew is led by the Holy Spirit to pull this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which originally pointed to King Hezekiah, and now he points this prophecy to Jesus. And the reason he pulls this prophecy is to remind God's people that God is faithful to his people and God will fulfill his promises just as he did through King Hezekiah. The people under King Hezekiah not only saw spiritual resurgence, but they experienced God's blessing and protection. And Matthew, in using this prophecy, not only a reminder But to make the point, as great as King Hezekiah was for the people of Judah, as great as a king he was in bringing spiritual resurgence and and, and, and trusting in God, this prophecy points to Jesus will be even greater. Because he is going to be the king of kings. Jesus is never going to doubt God. Jesus is never going to wrestle with trusting God. And Jesus was never going to fear what man could do to him. Though Hezekiah was the original meaning of Emmanuel in Isaiah, Jesus would be the complete fulfillment of Emmanuel for all people. Not just for the southern kingdom of Judah, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. He would be the true Emmanuel. And so in the context of Isaiah 7 and the prophecy that Matthew uses here in chapter 1, we come up with seven promises just from that name, Emmanuel. The first promise is this, the promise of God's presence. This is what King Ahaz struggled with. This is what King Hezekiah found reassurance in. And this is what Joseph came to understand through Mary's pregnancy and the angel's words to him in a dream. King Hezekiah saved his people for the duration of his reign as king, but Jesus, noticed in verse 21, would save his people from their sins, meaning for the duration of eternity. The promise of Scripture is that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, 
We found salvation and forgiveness in him alone. We are given the Holy Spirit, and God's continual presence dwells inside of us. We become the temple of the living God, God with us. We live with Emmanuel. Second promise, the promise of judgment. And we come to Christmas and all smiles and lights and festivities and sing happy songs and things like that. But Emmanuel actually was also a promise of judgment. When King Ahaz failed to have faith in God, the prophet Isaiah told him that God would bring judgment upon his household. When King Hezekiah decided that he would put his faith in God, reading scripture, that God removed the coming judgment of the Assyrians. And if people today do not have their faith in Emmanuel, in Jesus alone, they will face the judgment of God without any protection. Because they will die in their sins and they will be eternally separated from the God who came to save them and the God who loves them. Third promise, the promise of hope. This was the message and the challenge that God delivered to King Ahaz, but he refused and he didn't believe it. This was then the message that God spoke over King Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. And King Hezekiah, he put his faith in it. And this is the meaning of Jesus, hope. We who are born in our sins can be completely forgiven from our sins. And we can be reconciled back to a holy God who loves us and is for us. The word reconciled means to be brought back into harmony. And as defenseless as Ahaz and Hezekiah felt that they were in the Old Testament, as they saw this threat of invasion and ultimate death, the promise of Scripture is that if we are found in Christ, we don't have to live in that fear. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, But now that you've been set free from your sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Sanctification means set apart. God has set us apart from a sinful world, set us apart for himself. The Bible also tells us that if we are found in Christ, then in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We not only have hope for today in Emmanuel, but we have a hope for eternity because he loved us and he came to save us. Fourth, the promise of faith. King Ahaz was called to faith. The problem is he didn't have any. King Hezekiah was called to faith. And though he couldn't understand it, he trusted it. And God ultimately did incredible things through his life. We find in Scripture that God also calls us as his children to faith, to put our faith in Christ alone. And when we do, we need to see God do incredible things in and through our life. And the promise of faith is also a call to remember that God is faithful. He is faithful to his promises. This is something that King Ahaz didn't understand and obviously forgot, but King Hezekiah, he did. He got it. He got the message loud and clear. And because of the fulfillment of over, get this, over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ before he was even born, we can rest assured today that God is still faithful to his promises. And two great promises we find within the New Testament that God speaks over us is this. He will never leave us or forsake us. 
nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. Fifth promise, the promise of blessing. It's sad when you go back to Isaiah 7, this is exactly what God wanted to do to King Ahaz. He wanted to bless him. Ask me for a sign. Ask me for proof. Ultimately, this is what God did for Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And this is what God was calling Joseph to, through the angel's message, to not fear, verse 20, not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph was calling to be part of something that had never happened before and would never happen again. He was being called into the blessing of being the earthly father to the Son of God. And when God calls us into serving him, as he called Joseph here in Matthew 1, he is calling us into his blessing and to see things that we wouldn't have seen if we would have ignored it or walked away from it. The blessing for us is found in Emmanuel is we have our identity changed. The Bible says, and God speaks over us, that if we are found in Jesus Christ, we're no longer enemies of God, but we are children of God. We become heirs and co-heirs with Christ to the eternal kingdom of God. It carries the blessing of God's continual presence with us. It carries the blessing that we get to share the good news that we have come to accept. It carries the blessing that when we gather with other believers, as we're doing in this very moment, that we're not just gathering with other believers, but we are in the very presence of Christ Emmanuel. God is with us in this very moment. And it doesn't matter the size of the congregation. It's two or three gather in his name. He says, I am there with them. It carries the blessing of being able to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to form what is known as the church and to worship the truth that we are an eternal family. Brings us number six, the promise of future. Here in Matthew, we read, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And though the Gospel of John doesn't necessarily have what we would deem as a Christmas story, Jesus spoke these very truths to an older gentleman named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Seventh promise. The promise of salvation. When John the Baptist was out on the Jordan River baptizing people who were coming out to repent of their sins, and then finally Jesus shows up after the temptation. John sees him and points him out and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what we mean when we say the word salvation. It's having our sins removed completely and then being completely covered with the full righteousness of Christ. To know that when this life is over, we get to celebrate face to face with the true Emmanuel. I know we come to this time of year, and Christmas is typically a time where we celebrate the birth of Christ, but we always must remember, he was born so he could die. He was born so he could be the sacrifice. He was born so we could be saved. The whole meaning of the birth of Christ, the whole meaning of this time of Christmas, 
is so that Christ would become the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Do you know the first generation church and even the early church didn't actually celebrate the birth of Christ? They only celebrated his death and resurrection. But we have it here in Scripture that we are to know about it. And so we are to come to it and understand, okay, he is born for a reason. And what is that reason? Verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. And we might read that, well, that means Jewish people right now. Because all God's people are made in the image of God. So he will save his people, the people he created, from their sins. First John, we read that he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation carries the meaning of substitutional atonement. What that means is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And by we putting our faith in him alone, we have our sins completely removed. That means past, present, and future. Because Jesus substituted himself completely in our place, taking the full wrath of God for our sin. He took our punishment. He was our substitute. So that brings us to a question, have you accepted this gift? Some of us already gathered with family, we've exchanged gifts, or maybe just received gifts. I don't know where you are with that. Some of you are going to gather in the next couple days, maybe later today, and you're going to do the same thing, but God wants to give you the greatest gift of all, and that's his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we preach, proclaim, and present the gospel. So if you've tuned me out this whole time, then tune me in right now. God created you for a relationship with him. And it is your sin that is separating you from that relationship. You may be thinking, what's that? What's sin? Well, in today's terms, it would be like shooting an air ball. You completely miss the mark. You're not even close. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss his holiness and his holy standards. And sometimes we think, well, I'll just start going to church. You know, I'm going to go to church on Easter and Christmas and other times when I feel compelled. Maybe we're going to read our Bible. Maybe we're going to listen to more Christian radio. But see, we can't remove our sin problem. And that's why Jesus Christ was born. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because God sent his son to live a perfect life. He never sinned. He never fell short. He lived up to God's holy standard in everything that he did. And he did that so he could die on the cross, which he did. And they placed him in a tomb. But he rose three days later to show that he has the power over death, the power to forgive sins, and the authority to grant eternal life. But the issue is you have to accept the gift. It's extended before you, just as many would be extended before you in the next couple days, but you have to accept it. And here's the beautiful part. It's free. It costs God everything through his son, but it's free for us. The Bible says we admit to God that we're a sinner. We fall short. But we believe in our heart that God loved us that much to send Jesus. And Jesus did what he did. It doesn't mean you have to fully understand every aspect of it. The Bible finally says in Romans chapter 10, when we admit to God that we're a sinner, admit that we need forgiveness, believe that we can find forgiveness in Christ alone, and we confess him as Lord and Savior. The Bible says confess means public declaration. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. 
And when we confess him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says you will be saved. If you're here this morning and that's the gift you need to accept as we come this Christmas season, I'm going to stand down here. I'm going to invite you to come. You don't have to say much. You can say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. We'll talk together. We'll pray together. And if you're like, ah, what are people going to think? I promise you there won't be a believer in this place who won't be celebrating with you. And the Bible says when one person repents, comes back to the Lord, the heavens erupt. I'm going to ask Nick and Bridget to come up and lead us. I want to pray over us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are with us. Your word says you are for us, not against us. We thank you for that promise. So we go about this season, and we're going to be traveling here and there. Lord, let us remember that you are faithful to your promises. Thank you that you love us. You came to save us. You claim us as your own. You know us. And one day you're going to return and take us home. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that needs to begin a relationship with you, to confess you as Lord and Savior, I pray your spirit grab a hold of their heart, and when we stand to sing this song, they would walk down this aisle, and today would become the day of their salvation. Be glorified in this time. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.